The scripture reading for today is Mark 3, 20 through 30. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard about this, they came out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And so he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons and daughters of men, and whatever blasphemies they commit. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us by God. Good morning. How's everybody today? Um, if I start to cough, <clears throat> I had the, uh, a little bit of COVID a few weeks ago. So that stuff hangs around a long time. Man. So I'll try not to. Uh, I, saw, I saw Todd take a, a bottle of water from up here. I was afraid he took the last one. But there is one up here if I need it. So I'm going to be okay. All right. So we're continuing in the book of Mark. And we're going backwards as we've been doing. Um, and we did this because we want to really be sure that we're looking at the book of Mark with the end in mind. Um, as I previously noted, Mark actually starts the book of Mark in verse 1 by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark certainly had this idea of the, the suffering, executed, resurrected, and redeeming Son of God at the forefront of his mind as he wrote the book because he started with that statement. So we should have that at the forefront of our mind as we read. So we've been going backwards. And I won't review all that we've seen since we started this series, because we started this series the day after Christmas. So there's been a lot to it. But over the last few weeks, what we've heard is that Jesus has a heart of compassion and has a hand of provision. Jesus is the law restorer and the heart cleaner. I don't think I'm ever going to forget the image of dental cleaning when I think about Jesus cleaning hearts, okay? That, was, that, that one's going to live with me forever, Todd. Thanks, I appreciate that. Um, Jesus is the one who frees us from bondage to evil and restores us to community. And last week, Jesus is the one to whom we should attend, and he's the one who gives massive growth. Now, the last time I preached, I looked at Mark 8, where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? I noted that they answered that some thought he was a resurrected John the Baptist, some thought he was Elijah, or perhaps one of the other prophets of old. I noted that they clearly didn't know who Jesus was. But it turns out that the disciples and I left out some of the things that people were saying about Jesus, and we come to those today. So we're going to explore those things today and consider how relevant this is for us in our world today. And today we're going to look at the unforgivable sin the trilemma, and the relationship between the two. Let's pray. 
Lord, lead us as we consider your word. Give us insight and wisdom. Um, Help us to take in what we need to understand and learn and apply it in our lives that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're starting in verse 20 and 21. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Jesus and his disciples have come home. Now, frankly, we don't know quite whose home that is. Eh, It doesn't really matter. Um, But they're with everybody he's known all his life, right? And his family comes. Why? Because they think he's gone off the deep end, all right? Now, before we go further and, and kind of think, how could they think that, let's give this a bit of context. What actually has happened in the first two and a half chapters of Mark? Well, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. He's developed a gang of followers. He was a non-trained person teaching in the synagogue, and everyone was amazed. He was healing people. He the demon-possessed, Simon's mother's fever, a leper, a paralytic, a man with a withered hand. He was telling people their sins were forgiven. He was working on the Sabbath. He was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now, if you think about it, you could understand this family's conclusion. If Jesus is just a man, he has, in fact, lost his mind. In my lifetime, we've seen people who are delusional, claiming, even appearing almost to do some of these same things. They've often attracted large numbers of followers, but it has always ended in tragedy. So no wonder his family was worried about him. In today's vernacular, he and his followers would need to be deprogrammed. Now, there were these scribes also who were there. These are some of the Jewish religious leaders. They come from Jerusalem. And their opinion was that Jesus was some sort of demonic ruler. After all, he seemed to have power over dominions. And the summary of their view is in verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Who is Beelzebul anyway? Right? Well, let me point out that actually, depending on what translation you read, you're going to see Beelzebul, or you're going to see Beelzebub, and even some other variations. Whatever word is used, it's actually a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Beelzebub. Now, one can find a reference to Beelzebub in 2 Kings 1-2, where the injured king Ahaziah tells his servants to go inquire of the god of the king of the Canaanites whether he was going to be healed. And that God was named Baal-zebub in 1 Kings. But that's actually a little bit of a pun by the Hebrew writers because Baal-zebub means Lord of the Flies. All right? So by the time Jesus came along, though, by the time of Jesus' day, this word, this name, was actually used as the title, of the prin- a title for Satan, the prince of the demons. And Jesus and the religious leaders would have agreed, actually, that Satan is a liar. In John 8, Jesus is talking to Jewish leaders and says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, undoubtedly, the religious leaders didn't like uh, the fact that 
Uh, he, they, Jesus was telling them he was a, they were of the devil, so they would have disagreed with that, but they would have agreed that Satan is a liar. All right, so now, in the first part of this passage today, Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. The religious leaders think he's a lying, satanic representative. Hmm. Jesus now goes through three short parables, responding mainly to the religious leaders' accusations, and shows how illogical they are. The first in verse 24 is about the divided kingdom. The second in verse 25 is about the divided house. First of all, notice the implications of these two descriptions of Satan's domain, a kingdom and a house. Satan is not a disorganized loner out there flailing here and there trying to do a little bit of damage while we live our lives. Actually brings to mind to me Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan isn't a loner. He's a leader of forces, of a kingdom, if you will, of evil that is set in opposition to the kingdom of God. And if this is true, then, then Jesus sums up these two parables by saying, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's finished. Not much more than you can say about that. The third parable is about a strong man and a stronger man. Kind of a curious parable, isn't it? But to Jesus' original hearers, it may have called to mind Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25. Can the prey be taken from the mighty men, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. Through the prophet, God is promising that he will save people from the tyrant, from the mighty man. And this is being fulfilled by Jesus as he is plundering Satan's kingdom and freeing those under demonic control. So, no, this is not Satan's kingdom being divided. This is not just him plundering Satan's kingdom. This is the kingdom of God breaking down and breaking through the dominion and kingdom of darkness. We're going to come back to this issue of lunatic and liar in a moment, but to many come two troubling verses. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now these verses have caused a lot of angst among those who follow Jesus. I remember reading this as a new believer, and I feared, what if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? What if I've sinned the unforgivable sin, and I don't even know it? Have you ever had those thoughts? Any of you all thought that? Yeah, a few shaking heads. My response is simple. Those thoughts are misplaced, and they're wrong. If you are a follower of Jesus, and you are continuing to try to love him above all things, continuing to try to love his people, continuing to try to love those who are not his people, and continuing to try to obey the commands of God, and continuing to be repentant when you fail, because you will, then you should not and will not ever have to worry that you have sinned the eternal sin, or that you will sin the eternal sin. That's the simple answer. Don't worry about it. But let's dig a little deeper. And we don't have to go very far because in the next verse, 
Mark tells us why Jesus has said this. And he said this because they were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. So Jesus tells the religious leaders of his day that they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, a sin which is eternal, a sin which precludes God's forgiveness when they say that the signs and miracles that they are seeing come from Beelzebul and not from God. Well, let's dig a little deeper. Why is this unforgivable? And for that, we need to turn to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that if one gets really close to belief, if one understands Jesus' offer of forgiveness and that he is the Savior of the world, if one sees the power of God at work in believers and in the church, and if one gets close to giving their heart to Jesus and then turns away, then it is impossible. And let me come back to that word. It is impossible for them to come again to repentance. And I want you to see that this is really the same thing that the religious leaders were doing. They weren't living 2,000 years later hearing of the work of Jesus. They weren't living 2,000 years later seeing the work of the Holy Spirit and believers in the church today. They were seeing Jesus in person. They were seeing the healing, seeing the miracles, and they refused to believe. They saw all this, they refused to believe, and what's more, they said Jesus was of Beelzebul. You see, the real problem is that they were seeing without really seeing. They were blind and did not know they were blind. They were this close to God, and they turned away. If they did that, how could they do so in the future? That's what makes this sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, eternal and unforgivable. Let me pause for a moment and go back to that impossible in Hebrews 6. Is it really impossible? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is. The Apostle John implies in, verse John, in 1 John 5.16 that maybe we should not even pray for those who have sinned the sin leading to death, but also know something that Jesus says in Luke 18. Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler. You know the story, so I won't read the whole thing. But Jesus concludes by telling his disciples it is harder for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they respond, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Now, I'm not trying to imply that Hebrews is wrong, but if you have friends and family who have come close to following Jesus and turned away, I would not completely give hope. All things are possible with God. But for you who continue to follow Jesus, you should have no angst or no anxiety when you read this passage. No worry that you will sin the eternal unforgivable sin Because if you continue to follow him, you can't and you won't. But those of you who are here today and not following Jesus, I would implore you to not turn away either. Pursue him. He is waiting with open arms for you to come. Who knows, but this is maybe your only opportunity. Don't turn your heart away when you're this close to Jesus. Let me return to this issue of Jesus as being crazy or demonic. 
the things that his family and the religious leaders were saying about him. And as we do so, I'm reminded of a friend of mine when I was a young believer. Oh, it's twice today I've talked about when I was a young believer. That was a long time ago. I can't believe I remember this stuff. Holy cow. Um, In any event, I was sharing with him what I was learning as I was beginning to follow Jesus. And he said, you know, I just can't believe that. He acknowledged that Jesus was a good man, but he just needed more. And I asked him, what more do you need? He said, I don't know. Maybe if suddenly some writing appeared in the sky saying, Jesus is Lord, then I might believe. I need some sign that it's true. I said, you mean some sign like a man being raised from the dead? The conversation ended in silence. My friend's initial response is one that many of us have heard. I think Jesus was a good man, but I don't think he is Lord. Well, as followers of Jesus, we need to be ready to respond to this kind of foolishness. And you may think it's strong to call that statement foolishness, but it is because Jesus' family and the religious leaders got it right. Jesus is crazy, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. The only thing that Jesus is not is just a good man. And this issue, Jesus as lunatic, liar, or Lord, has been called a trilemma. A dilemma is a difficult situation involving two choices. And this is a difficult situation involving three choices. And while many of you have heard of the trilemma before, I've personally found it useful over these last few weeks to think through some of this again. So we're going to do that over the next few minutes. Why can we be so confident that Jesus wasn't crazy? Why can we be so sure that he was not out of touch with reality? Why can we be so sure that he was not a narcissistic liar who enjoyed misleading people? The short answer is to reflect on the life that Jesus lived. Now I want you to think about this. Put yourself in the Jewish context. The Jewish people of the day had a rather unique understanding of God. People from the Eastern cultures believed God was some type of divine power Um, not really personal, in the world, in nature, maybe in all of us. People from Western cultures like Greece and Rome, they believed that gods were these flawed beings who came down to earth every every now and then to have a good time. The Jews thought that God was the sovereign, utterly holy, creator of the world, and all that is, and there is only one God. And Jesus was claiming to do things that only God can do. How did Jesus get any people, any Jewish people to follow him? Why did they do it? Tim Keller asks it this way. What sort of life, what kind of character must Jesus Christ have had in order to convince thousands of Jews, many of which had lived day and night with him, to believe something that was absolutely against everything they had ever been taught, absolutely against their worldview, absolutely against every fiber of their being, everything they had ever understood about themselves, what kind of life must he have lived in order to break through that? It was not because he lived the life of a lunatic or a liar. Again, quoting Keller, it must have been something like what you actually have here in the Bible. Because what his followers saw was the staggering egocentricity of his claims. I am God. I forgive your sins, along with the staggering non-egocentricity of his life. His love for the poor, his love for the marginal, his love for the suffering. 
The staggering egocentricity of his claims along with the staggering humility and non-egocentricity of his life were like sun and frost and sun and frost. Finally, it broke his followers open to the truth and they worshipped him. Keller is saying that the life of Jesus, that Jesus lived, broke through into the lives of people around him just as the cycles of thaw and freeze thaw and freeze, break down boulders and rocks. As I was preparing, I thought a bit about those delusional people who have led people astray, even in my lifetime. I said earlier, it always ends in tragedy. I've actually gone back and read about some of those movements in the last few weeks. The People's Temple, the Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate. The leaders always sounded good at first, But as they accrue and amass followers, they become more and more self-aggrandizing, egocentric, and delusional. And each situation ended in tragedy for dozens to thousands. And Jesus' claims undoubtedly sounded egotistical and crazy to many around him, but his life won them over. His life convinced them he is not a lunatic because lunatics don't live this way. He is not a liar because liars don't live this way. He must be who he says he is. God incarnate with the power to heal and to forgive sins. This is the answer to the trilemma. But people today don't like the answer to the trilemma, do they? Because it means Jesus is Lord and he has a legitimate claim on their lives. So now they have to come up with another way to avoid this unavoidable answer to the trilemma. And the answer today is to say something like, well, I understand the trilemma and your answer to it, okay. But you you just can't really trust the New Testament Gospels to tell you what Jesus really said and really did. I mean, they're they're just legends. People People today will say Jesus was a teacher of love and peace. But it was his followers who got together and created and wrote the Gospels, these pictures of Jesus, and those writers attributed claims to him that he never claimed. So how do we respond to that? Keller outlines three reasons why this idea that Jesus' followers created Jesus as Lord is not possible. And I think these are useful for us to know as we interact with people in our culture today. The first reason is that the New Testament Gospels were written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Now if you're going to create a legend and make up stories about a man in his life, you can't do it while people are still living who can refute and contradict your story. Paul tells the Corinthians, if you want to know, go ask. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance, but I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. The New Testament was written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. It is not a legend written decades after the death of all the eyewitnesses to the events it describes. The second reason is that if you're going to write in the first century or two after Jesus' death, an account of a great and noble man's life, death, and resurrection to try to deceive people into following you, the leaders of this new movement, there are at least two things that you wouldn't put in there. The first one is our story today. His family thought he was crazy. Now remember, James, one of his brothers, 
part of his family, becomes a leader of the Jerusalem church. Now let's see, I'm trying to deceive people into following me, and I'm going to make up a story about Jesus to convince them, and I'm going to include a story that makes me think that Jesus was a lunatic. Would I make up a story that made me look that dumb, foolish, and ignorant? No, I would never do that. And similarly, for that matter, would you include story, uh, Peter's, the story of Peter's denial of Jesus if he was part of the leaders in their deception? The second thing that you wouldn't write is that the story of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, you don't think that's a big deal. But in the first century Greek, Roman, and Jewish cultures, women were not allowed to testify in court. They were considered to be unreliable witnesses. I'm sorry, I'm just reporting that. I, I don't believe that. I'm just reporting that. So if I wanted to write a story to, get, uh, to deceive people into believing that Jesus was resurrecting from the dead, I would in that day never have written that women were the first eyewitnesses. So just those two reasons alone are reasons to think that this is not legend. But the third reason is the tale that we find in the gospel accounts. In Mark 4, as Jesus and the disciples are going across the Sea of Galilee, a storm comes up. What's Jesus doing? He's in the stern. Scripture says he's asleep on a cushion. A cushion? What does that add to the story? You're probably thinking, what does that, why does that make any difference at all? Well, this is not how legends and myths were written in that day. They weren't written as fictional narrative. Keller paraphrases C.S. Lewis, a renowned professor of ancient literature, long before he became a believer. Lewis was a renowned expert in ancient literature. C.S. Lewis says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. None of them are like the Gospels. Of the Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative 2,000 years ahead when it happened. The reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned to read. A little brutal. So this is simply not written as other fictional narrative of the day as legends and myths were written. Fictional narrative with this degree of detail was not known in that day and age. In fact, it was not known for another one and a half millennia or more. Lewis concluded, and we must conclude, it is historical reporting. So as we live in our culture and we talk to people around us who, who want to tell us that Jesus is a good dude, that he's a good man, he really was a great man of love and peace, and they don't want to conclude that he's Lord, then we don't want to let them tell us that they New Testament was a made-up story or legend. Because if it was, then it, they wouldn't have written it this way, right? They wouldn't have made the leaders look bad. They wouldn't have made the first eyewitness culturally inappropriate. And the style of writing is just completely wrong. And so we and our modern colleagues are back to the trilemma. Jesus is a liar. He's a lunatic. Or he's Lord. As we close this morning, I want you to see a relationship of those who claim that the New Testament account of Jesus is unreliable and the unforgivable sin. 
people who claim that the New Testament account of Jesus is unreliable are really doing two things. The first we've already noted, they are implying that the early church leaders were liars, deceivers, and cheats, that they were evil. That's bad enough. And by the way, if that's true, one has to ask, why would these leaders all suffer crushing persecution and not eventually admit that they were liars, deceivers, and cheats? And that's a great question, but we're going to save that one for another day. But Scripture itself tells us that the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, and it was written by men carried along by the Spirit, 2 Peter 1.20. Uh, so the second thing that those who claim that the New Testament account of Jesus is unreliable are doing is taking something done by the Spirit, the writing of the New Testament, and attributing it to evil. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And they're doing so that they can avoid the claim of Jesus on their lives so that they can smugly reject Jesus. And because they reject Jesus, they are sinning the one sin that cannot be forgiven. The most important question in anyone's life is the one that Jesus asks in Mark 8, 29. But who do you say that I am? Today we have seen that the answer in Jesus' day was that he was a lunatic, a liar, or Lord, and it's no different today. He was a lunatic, he was a liar, or he is Lord. <clears throat> if you've given your heart to Jesus, then have no fear. You have not and will not commit the unforgivable sin. But if you've not given your heart to Jesus, consider it today. You only need to ask. He's inviting you to life in its fullness now and forevermore. Amen.